Good afternoon and welcome to the Sitka Nature Show. This is your host, Matt. I want to thank you for joining me here in the first weekend of June 2022. With less than two weeks to go until the summer solstice, we are in the time of year with our longest days, plenty of daylight to get out there and explore. And as always, if you are getting out, I'd love to hear what you're seeing out there. Please feel free to send me an email, sitkanature at gmail.com, or get on Facebook and like the Sitka Nature page there. We had a bit of rain here in Sitka yesterday, a change of pattern from the sunny skies and warm temperatures, not quite as sunny and warm as it was elsewhere in southeast Alaska. Sitka was moderated significantly by a marine layer that uh, pushed and kind of had a little bit of an argument, I guess, with the sunny offshore sort of flow that uh, ended up being in town here. At least in my experience, it was mostly sunny most of the time, but sometimes the marine layer would push in. And even when it did uh, warm up a bit, the sea breeze would come in and cool things down. So we didn't have the record-breaking temperatures that elsewhere in southeast Alaska had. I did get out and walk up Harbor Mountain Road from the third gate. There was snow still above the switch back after the third gate so there was that that gate won't open up until the snow has melted but with the warm temperatures we're having i suspect that will happen before too long it was in the 70s up there and it was interesting to see all the little um, streamlet courses which are often dry even when it's uh, raining as long as it's not raining too hard but they were running full of water as the snow was rapidly melting we're pretty much out of the spring bird migration. There's still a chance of seeing some overshoots, some birds that migrated a little too far north on their spring migration showing up here, which is always exciting if we get a little bit of a vagrant. But the last of the breeding birds that I expect to see here was the cedar waxwing. I haven't seen one yet, but I did hear reports of them this past week. So bird-wise, we're into the summer season. There's no doubt some fledglings about, although I haven't seen them yet. Many species are nesting, and by the end of the month, we'll start to see some of our first southbound migrants. So good time to be getting out and looking at the birds. The conversation I have for this week's show is one I recorded earlier this year with Julie Schramm. She was in town as part of the Scientists in Residence Fellowship at the Sitka Sound Science Center. She's an assistant professor at the University of Alaska Southeast in Juneau. And we'll go ahead and join the conversation with her telling me a little bit about herself. I am a marine biology nerd. <laughs> I love things that don't have backbones. So invertebrates are my jam. I love seaweeds. Um, I love the interactions between the two. So you get a little bit of the ecology in there. And then I'm just curious about where I live. Like I like going out and hiking and uh, learning about <laughs> what's there and what it's useful for. And I don't know. I'm just generally curious. But um, a more formal definition, I'm a, an assistant professor at the University of Alaska Southeast in Juneau. Um, I recently started there um, where I get to teach and do research. It's, I feel pretty lucky. Nice. Yeah. Well, I had the chance you you offered a seminar, and I think the recording of that is available on the Science Center website somewhere. People end up wanting to go back and check that out. But I did. I watched that, and and you. I guess it was your PhD work, or was it postdoc work? I'm not sure, but um, I don't remember off the top of my head. But looking at some of the ecological interactions in Antarctica, which yeah. is a little ways away from here, but uh, <laughs> but has has things to say. And I suppose you know the t- techniques you develop working there and stuff. Then you get to apply elsewhere. That's part of the part of the, the beauty of research and, and learning how to do things. And so, yeah, what I remember of that is you were looking at at Actually, some experimental conditions where you you got some stuff from the field and uh, amphipods and and kelp, if I remember correctly, and we're looking at 
um, you know, changing temperatures and changing pH in, in the water. And, and the two big concepts I remember you talking about were resistance and resilience in terms of the communities and in terms of the individual species. And yeah. so, yeah, maybe you could just sort of outline those concepts. Okay, yeah. When you're talking to an ecologist, they have very specific definitions for what resistance and resilience mean. We use those terms all the time, right? Just when you see them in headlines, um, you hear it at school. But for ecologists, it has a really um, specific meaning, um, and I'm not going to get it completely right here. (laughs) Um, But for resilience, um, usually that is where an an animal or even a community can um, experience a disturbance, and then they're able to kind of reorganize and remodel everything. And so there's probably a dip in performance um, that they have kind of a negative effect, but they're able to rebound and then return to that previous level of of performance for whatever um, metric you're looking at. Um, it's kind of, if you think about like a, a rubber band, so the resilience, if you stretch it and it's able to s- snap back, it has more resilience. Um, for resistance, um, that's where you have um, a disturbance that happens and it influences an animal and they just, they do, it doesn't affect them. They're fine. They don't have to do that reorganization. They can just keep on trucking. And so that's kind of like a really tough rubber band where you can't really stretch it very well. Um, I don't know. In my head, it makes sense to yeah. think about it as a rubber band. <laughs> <laughs> no, that sounds good to me. I was so one of the things I was curious about uh, uh, around that is is if a community changes, like is that still considered resistant? I mean, re- resilience in that there's still a functional community there, but now it's different in some significant ways than it was before. It's not. I mean, I wouldn't imagine that's resistance because it hasn't stayed the same under mm-hmm. the under these changes, but it's, it's adapted in some way. So would you consider that a, a type of resilience or is that a, a, a third category? No, it, I think you're right on there. It, it just depends on the met, uh, what you're looking at. What is that service or what, what is that overall measurement that you're making? If you have like a, an area where you're looking at the biodiversity, you're counting all of the things there, you have a disturbance, some things die off and some things recruit in so you have like new species that are living there but in the end the number of species are the same and then your biodiversity has been resilient but if you're looking at maybe um, whether it is you have net uh, photosynthesis so you you're looking at plants versus animal abundance maybe all of the plants get wiped out so like if you think about an urchin barren if you count all of the individual species and you don't categorize um what service they're playing in that uh, community. Um, You could have the same number of species before and after, but it would be very different functionally. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? So it it all depends on what you're looking at. Yeah. I mean, I'm reminded that life is complicated and and when you're trying to study, you know, it's, it's how many different ways can we slice this to give us different pieces of information, kind of different perspective on uh, different perspectives on what's, on what's going on, but ultimately, you know, things are, are complicated and you can't really describe it. If you could describe it perfectly, then you're just basically looking at the thing that you're looking at and, yeah. and that's not necessarily as helpful. So, so there may be different questions that you're asking about like, oh, under this particular effect of, uh, you know, whatever that might be, increased glacial runoff or, you know, um, Warming or different uh, freshwater sorts of things, you know, putting in a breakwater, for example, might change wave action. Like there's lots of different ways that things get changed. Um, And then it's it's kind of like, okay, so what are the things that are, at least from 
a researcher perspective, I guess you get to choose. You're not going to study everything. So it's then it's like, what are the important things or things that are most interesting to me for whatever reason mm-hmm. uh, to look at? And so photosynthesis or, or sort of the um, the way that the, the community richness, so that might be abundance or, yeah. or things like that. Yeah. Yeah. And so when you were when you were studying that there, I'm guessing that, well, I mean, it seemed like it's kind of cold down there. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, so we were on the, the Antarctic Peninsula, so we're mm-hmm. actually above the Antarctic Circle. So the weather is not, I mean, too much different than some areas of Southeast. I mean, it's not quite as rainy. Yeah, a few more icebergs, maybe. A few more icebergs. Yeah, um, I guess little... if you're up in, in, like, one of the fjords where yeah, the glaciers are, yeah. then, yeah. A lot less trees. There are. Yeah. <laughs> the biggest land animal is a midge. Oh. Just a little well, midges. Yeah, I guess you don't have to worry about uh, scary, uh, scary critters coming to get you then. Although uh, <laughs> leopard seals seem a little scary, though. Yeah, I, I'm not a fan of leopard seals. <laughs> I know some people are, have a much more chill um, uh, inner point of view with them. I I, uh, I am wary. Yeah. But not because I think they mean to do anybody harm. I just think that they are really big and we are in their habitat and we just can't play in the water like they do. So even if they're being friendly, they could inadvertently hurt us. Yeah. And so I just, you're clear. <laughs> Do you so yeah the, the leopard seals I'm mostly familiar with because I've heard of them they eat penguins and and that sort of thing but like size wise I'm not really sure are they larger or smaller than like Ooh. a big sea lion or they're about I think we saw some sea lions the other day and I was thinking yeah that's about a leopard seal size yeah they, they can get I think up to 15 feet long mm. they're pretty big but then they also can be smaller they're kind of bulky um, yeah. But they move around in the water, I'm sure, very effectively. Yes, they're super <laughs> graceful. They're beautiful. Yeah. It's one of those beautiful lethal things. Yeah. Well, I get nervous with sea lions coming a little close. And it doesn't have to be very close, to be honest, uh, <laughs> when I'm kayaking. Yeah. I can't imagine being in the water. I remember having a student tell me once that uh, like, he had a sea lion just uh he was diving mm. and it just like grabbed his fin and was yeah. like pulling on it a little bit like it was playing. But yeah, so you say playing yeah, <laughs> for an animal like that is, is, uh, can be a little rough on, on us fragile. Yeah. Humans. We're just, it's not our, it's not our environment. Yeah. And I respect that that is their environment. So you get to spend a lot of time, um, in the water, you diving and, and is that, that's part of your research or is that sort of like you do that for fun and and the research is an excuse to to get into the water or (laughs) a little bit of both i do it for fun and for for work um when we're in antarctica it's all for work so we usually are going out and collecting whatever critters we're going to be using for an experiment or food for our critters um in an experiment um we've done some field studies it's just with um, Antarctica, it's it's more limited because they have the Antarctic Treaty. You can't mm. just put stuff out and leave it there. It has to be very well coordinated that you're going to put it out for this amount of time and then it's going to come back in. So there aren't any like permanent transects unless there's a plan for um, maintenance for that. Mm. So yeah. It's a little it, different. So it is, I guess one of the things then is you're, you've been in Southeast Alaska now for a little over a year, about a mm-hmm. year and a half maybe. Yeah. And then... Um, Prior to that, you spent a lot of time in Washington? I grew up in Washington State, and um, I did my graduate work in Alabama. Oh, okay. It's a little different climate. A little different climate. Well, so it's kind of a funny story the way I got there. Um, After I did my undergraduate degree at Western Washington University, um, I worked as a lab technician in Antarctica, and that's where I met my... um, graduate school advisor and he happens to work in Alabama so Ah. 
um, he had some money for a grad student, and I just happened to connect with him at the right time, and so I was able to go and <laughs> do my grad work in Alabama. It was kind of a a lot of people were like, how did you decide to go there? Well, funny story. I went to the other other end of the earth first. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I've heard that there's, yeah, many times people go where there's somebody they want to work with. Yeah. And the work that you've done there, so so you've done this ecology work, marine ecology work, and, and you're just kind of, I guess, getting to know the lay of the land, so to speak, or the seas here. Mm-hmm. Um, what sort of things have you been observing and, and what is, um, yeah, what's standing out to you is, is kind of being of interest so far? Oh, right now, I'm really lucky to get to work with a network of researchers that are studying um, the influence of glaciers in their in the watersheds and how that um, change on the land can affect the um, marine animals in the near shore. And so um, I get to work with a team that has folks that focus on the streams, and then there's um, I get to help out with the work in the, the intertidal. So we have... Uh, I, or the group has identified a set of watersheds that have um, it's kind of along a gradient, so from no glacier to about like 60% glacier present um, in the watersheds, and then we're looking at a lot of different um, aspects of the ecology and how what animals are there. Does having more or less um, water influence, freshwater influence, how does that change how things interact? And so that's the part I get to help with is doing the, the food web. Mm. Um, connections. I guess it, you know, I hadn't really thought about this too much until you're just mentioning it there, but I imagine it makes a difference if there's a lake, for example, in, yeah. in the drainage where things can settle out more as opposed to if it's just like glacier to the ocean, all, you know, flowing water the whole way. Yeah, it's so interesting. I've been learning a lot about things I hadn't considered before. So it's not just like salinity, which we know like more river water you have fresher water but like when that happens so with uh more glaciers present through the summer even if there's a drought you'll still have water coming down that stream as that glacier is slowly melting compared to um, a watershed where there is no glacier if there's no rain there's no water so the the streams dry up so then that changes everything down downstream (laughs) right yeah (laughs) (laughs) Uh, so that it's a you definitely have different dynamics. And and the same thing with, like, turbidity. So if you have more stuff suspended in the water, the dynamics on the land really influence what comes out and um, ends up in the, the near shore. Yeah. I, re- I remember speaking with somebody from Juno, Richard Carsonson, mm-hmm. and we were – he was – I think he was visiting town when we were speaking, actually, and he was saying, oh, so your high water events are in the spring. And I was like, uh, no, <laughs> not even close. Um and I didn't like he just sort of took for granted, but his experience was mainland rivers. And okay. when you think about like big mainland rivers um, versus here, our high water events are all in the fall when we have or the winter when we have big rain events. Mm-hmm. But a watershed here is pretty small, like the biggest watershed on the island maybe goes back 15 miles or something. Oh, wow. So it's not. You know, it's this island because there are glaciers and stuff, and there is plenty of snow in the mountains. Mm-hmm. But when you think about the massive watershed of, say, a Stikine River or something, and you have the entire watershed melting out yeah. all at the same time, like that's a lot of water coming into the mm-hmm. system. Whereas the snow melt here isn't, I, I, sh- I should say, in comparison to rain, which is going to not cover the whole entire watershed, whereas rain yeah. here 
definitely covers the whole watershed. <laughs> you know, it's not that big of a watershed. Yeah. And so I hadn't really thought about that dynamic before. And I don't know, like it would be kind of interesting. I guess I'd be a little curious. Maybe somebody's done that sort of work to just say, well, how big a watershed do you need in order for it to be spring runoff being the high time and, oh, and yeah. fall runoff being not as high, relatively speaking. Um, but given our seasonal patterns of rain here, the, the fall and winter, <laughs> yeah. uh, are, you know, th- we're in what passes for a dry season right now. But mm-hmm. as I talk to people from California and so forth, they're like, well, it's still pretty, <laughs> pretty wet up there. Um, and, but it is, it is an interesting dynamic. And then with the glaciers being an even larger bank than the snow yeah. uh, in, in terms of letting stuff out. And, and I can imagine that when you start to look at the, the intertidal stuff, like, there's a lot of nutrients, presumably, that yeah. the glaciers are or mineral nutrient type mm-hmm. nutrients, maybe less organic stuff in glacial systems. Like it's it's interesting to just kind of like I'm sure people are I mean, that's why you're studying all this, but I always have lots of questions come to mind. I'm like, well, I wonder I wonder how that would be. Yeah. <laughs> One of the things I've been really excited or curious about, I didn't even think that about it, but there's subterranean groundwater hmm. that also comes out and that has a different nutrient profile and it has a different flow rate and, and you can get the that um, there are researchers at the University of Alaska Anchorage that are, are kind of looking into that, and it's really cool. I just I don't know enough about it to speak about right, it like, right. super intelligently, except that I want to learn more. Yeah, presumably in in the studies that you're sort of uh, looking at now and working with other people on, I'm guessing they're mostly mainland rivers. Yeah, they're um, there. We have a set of watersheds that we're looking at in Kachemak Bay, mm-hmm. and then Inland Canal. Oh, okay. Down by yeah. Juneau. Yeah. It would be difficult to compare because of the other other issues, you know, watershed size and stuff. I yeah. imagine that you want to yeah. have fairly good control on, on as many variables as you can. Yeah, that's one of the complications. Yeah. yeah. It's hard to, to find true replicates. Right. Yeah. You kind of take, <laughs> take what you can get and, yeah. and do your best uh, um, to to match things. And so are you just kind of getting started on that or have you started to like w- what role do you get to play in in this in this study? That, so I'm getting started on it, but I got to join an existing team that has been working on it. They're, they're part of the an NSF funded grant. Um, the granting agency is the EPSCOR program. Mm-hmm. So they have a five year grant. And so we're getting towards the end of that. And I, I started around year three. And so I've kind of gotten to um, jump in to an already established network. So I'm just getting started, but there is good information that people are, some people are wrapping up projects. and So it's it's different people come in and have like little sub projects within this larger, larger question. Do yeah. you have any sense of what sort of questions that you're going to try and look at? Okay. So the thing that I'm interested in, this is where I, I came in and why I, I think it's cool. Um, so I use lipids to figure out, um, to look at organismal condition to see how healthy they are, assuming something's fat and happy, has lots of lipids. Um, something that's not as happy, we won't have as many. Um, and then I can look even closer at the building blocks of the lipids. So um, the building blocks of all lipids are fatty acids. And so I can look at the different types of fatty acids in the lipids to also get an idea of how healthy they are. But I can also use that to figure out who's eating whom. Um, because if you go from the point of view, you are you are what you eat, um, you can kind of figure out what from the fatty acids what something's been eating. And um, people in the past have um, published a lot of work that says that the environment can influence um, how things, um, their fatty acids. So if you're warm, if it's warmer out, you're, you're going to have different fatty acids than if it's cooler out. Um, 
And so these are kind of slow changes. It's not like an immediate thing. Um, so people say that, but they don't actually document what that looks like. Mm. And so that's what I'm excited about being able to do with these watersheds is um, you have actually a really complicated dynamic. You have changes in the salinity, in temperature, um, in the turbidity, in the nutrients that are all available and kind of swirling around in this natural kind of experiment along this gradient. And so I'm hoping I can get a better idea of exactly how salinity or temperature influences the fatty acids of these different things. And we can tease that out from, so this is getting into the technical part, tease it out and, and figure out the, the food web connections. Mm. Yeah, I guess I've, I, I, it sounds like this is a little different, but, but you know, similar, trying to address similar sorts of questions, but with different tools. This I've heard about, um, was it, carbon and nitrogen yeah, and looking at the isotopes of those exactly. and whether it's marine derived, terrestrial derived and, yep. and some things like that, you can start to tease out from, from those and actually some rare isotope analysis and like feathers, you can tell where birds were just yeah, like exactly. north versus south because of things. And it's all, um, I'll, I'll take for granted, I'll, I'll, I'll trust the folks that say that this works uh, <laughs> and just uh, without knowing all the details of how it works. But so fatty acid profiles, you're not, I, I guess I don't know. Are you looking at some of those those um, isotopes or rare elements within that, or is it purely just okay? What fatty acids are we seeing, and what proportions? So, um, using fatty acids, it's a really good complementary approach mm-hmm. to using the isotopes. Um, when you look at fatty acids, you can um, go through and look at take out. Basically, what I do is I, I get all the lipids out, and then I look at all the fatty acids that are present, and that makes a fingerprint. So all the different fatty acids that I identify, that pattern is that fingerprint. And so I can look at individual ones that are interesting. Like we have um, essential fatty acids are probably something that people hear about most often with um, fish oil supplements. Um, We can look at essential fatty acids and how much of different essential fatty acids are there. So we can, those are the more rare ones. um, Or we can look at ratios of those, or we can look at the whole thing. So all of that. <laughs> yeah. It, it de- just depends on how you want to parse the data and what your what your question is. That's what so it's kind of an involved process to get the fatty acids, but then once you have that data set, you, you can look at it lots of different ways and get lots of different information about that organism. Uh, well, so somewhere along the line somebody's got to make them in the first place. Yeah. Like they aren't just free living so much, are they? So the the fatty acids I mean. Yeah. So I guess I hear about um, like we eat fish oil, but but part of the reason that eating fish oil to get your omega threes or whatever is good is because they in turn are eating these algae that yeah. are making them. Or I've also heard about krill. Various forms of zooplankton have mm-hmm. different a- uh, fatty acid profiles and are like um, with usually that in the context of talking about whales and what whales are eating. So they really like the krill because they have lots of fat. But if it's Maybe if it's warmer, then there's a different kind of zooplankton that tends to dominate, and yeah. it's not nearly as rich in the fats and yeah. and those sorts of things. So it's kind of these sorts of questions. But are you then looking at and able to trace back? All right, is this a? I mean, I don't know if are, are there animals that can make their own fatty acids, or are we all making our own fatty acids? But and and how are you distinguishing that from like, oh, this is derived from eating these particular things over here and that kind of thing? Oh, that's such a good question. <laughs> okay, so that gets into a lot of different answers. Let's see. Um, so we make our own fatty acids, but we have to get, we as heterotrophs, as things that eat other things, we have yeah. to get the bare bones, like the um, basic parts um, from our food. And then we can, uh, our bodies then modify it 
um, by either lengthening those fatty acid chains or shortening them for whatever we need for our physiology. For omega-3s that you hear a lot about with fish oil, only plants or things that can photosynthesize can make omega-3 fatty acids. And so that's why they're essential is because we have to get them from our food. So it's easiest um, at those basal levels because you can, um, you're really close to where that fatty acid was originally built de novo from scratch. Usually that happens in the, the primary producer, so a seaweed or a, a plant. Um, there are some that we can make, but we can't make all of them. We can modify the things that we're getting from our, our diet. The last part, the way you tell where things are coming from yeah. is, uh, or the way that I've done it, you can do um, modeling. So you can take the, the raw data and you can use you model, figure out who's eating whom. Or you can do straight feeding assays where you just say, okay, I'm going to feed you this thing and then I'm going to look at your fatty acids of the, the thing I fed you and you. And then you can figure out oh, So you build a profile essentially and then yeah. you look to see what it crossing fingers matches yeah uh, and if you don't find a match i guess that's a complication but yeah um well so that's interesting yeah so so i find myself wondering different plants and i don't know which plants make make what but but different each each well i say each species but then i suppose it could be each individual depending on the conditions and that's part of what you're looking at yeah. then it's like how are the con- conditions both and so our, as part of this question, are you looking at then the primary producers of these fatty acids and then looking how that I, – because I, I suppose there's a couple of different things that, that in, in principle could happen is that, one, the fatty acid profiles of the original producers are changing, whether mm-hmm. that's because of changes in species composition or uh, individual species adapting within different conditions, and then how those things propagate through the system, the food web, might – differ as well. So you yeah. could have the, the foundation being different, but also even if the foundation weren't different, it could it, it its effects of the way that it propagates could be different under different conditions. So so you kind of have those two factors that could be interacting, I suppose, yeah. as well. Yeah. And so I'm trying to figure out how much those interact. Mm-hmm. We do know that um, when you're looking at the fatty acid profiles, the thing that is most influential is what the animal or plant is. Like who you are determines your fatty acids more than your environment. And and if you think about it, it kind of makes sense. Like your physiology is different than a piece of lettuce. Right. <laughs> it has yeah. really different demands and needs. So it'll have different lipid demands and needs. And so you're not going to look exactly alike. Um, and so that's why the identity of what you're looking at is the strongest thing. And then within um, that kind of area there, there's a little bit of variation, but it won't be as much as the difference between um, like a rabbit and a fox. So they'll still be different enough because their physiology is different enough. So the, the, the variation within foxes, there is some. Yeah. Depending on what they eat, presumably. But mm-hmm. even that's going to tend to get brought back towards what, what's needed. Like there's a relatively, there, there's a range of acceptable in terms of functioning fox or yeah. human as the case may be. And we run into trouble. I mean, I guess that's part of the challenge of our modern food system, right? Is that is that maybe we have access to a lot of stuff that we aren't well adapted for, yeah. <laughs> but we like to eat anyway. <laughs> and so, so we, we, push, we end up pushing ourselves outside of the realm of optimal functioning because, yeah. because we're eating uh, in a certain way. Whereas in, in nature, that seems to not happen quite as much, I guess, except under, under duress. Yeah. Um, but that, so, so there's that natural range of variation. 
Um, but that's relatively small compared to variation between animals. Yeah. So what you were talking about is actually a really intriguing thing mm-hmm. that people are looking at with um, climate changes. Um, if you have like uh, a change in the community, so you have some of those species disappearing and you have new ones coming in, so you have the net no change in biodiversity, so you still have the same number, but the identity of them are different. If the new ones that came in are not as nutritious, then things that are were feeding on that community, like of phytoplankton, they no longer have that same nutrition available, so they might have to feed more and expend more energy getting their food. And so that's one of those things where it, it could cascade up the, mm. the food chain, it just having that identity. So th- that's bringing it back to the resilience right. and resistance. Right. Well, and that... It's an interesting question to me because, um, yeah, I mean, how much can you str- – and I suppose that's just going to depend on the species and how much um, variability there is within the genome, yeah. uh, you know, the plasticity, I guess, that allows it to, to adapt. Obviously, things have been around for a long – things have been around for a long time. Any particular thing, not, mm-hmm. not so long <laughs> – <laughs> as we've as we've adapted along the way, or we in the in the very broadest sense of of we have adapted along the way to different environmental conditions and 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 evolution as as we move through. Um, so and that was kind of part of my curiosity about this, you know, resistance and resilience. And and I guess I might like the word that comes to mind is adaptation. So uh, one of the things that you looked at was the effect of acidity uh, or changing pH on on the amphipods and th- mm-hmm. that there was this kind of mortality threshold that seemed to happen when they molted. Yeah. But I was wondering, like, I mean, this was of necessity kind of a short-term project, mm-hmm. relatively speaking. But if there is within their genome enough resilience to that, that, that it's like, oh, then there's a selection pressure for the ones that, that actually that doesn't bother. Yeah. And so then... You know, the species is the same, but there's a, you know, I guess if if you could look at it with a fine enough genetic uh, wand, you could see, <laughs> oh, actually the, the different, uh, you, you know, the pattern of, of uh, alleles or whatever it is that, that you would say uh, are showing up a little differently now because there's been a selection for this type of, of yeah. ability to, to cope. Yeah. And, and I guess we don't know how much resilience is in a population until you test it, I guess. Yeah, it's hard to know. I mean... I'm not as much on the gene end yeah, of things, yeah. but I, I'm sure people figured out some ways to look at that, but or potential for that kind of adaptation. But that was one of the things that made me feel more hopeful about the results of that study because I did have a lot of my amphipods die off yeah. when I put them in those conditions where it was a it wasn't even a huge pH change and they just weren't surviving their molts. And I was I I was so stressed out for that experiment. Let me tell you, I was I was so afraid. I wanted them to live. I didn't want them to to die. And I had so much mortality. But by the end, the ones that did survive, they weren't that different from the other ones in the control treatment that it had survived. So it seemed like there was kind of like some hope that even though they'd go through maybe this really stressful bottleneck, something probably was going to or could potentially, yeah, make it through. Yeah, that's what I, I often wonder about is like, you know, I don't, I, and it's kind of, it also is such a, a scale dependent thing, right? It's like, yeah. is this happening everywhere? Or is this happening in a little pocket? Yeah. And how are, how are the communities adapting, you know, when you, when you shift something like, you know, 
putting in a harbor or breakwater mm-hmm. and you do some dredging and you put in a, a breakwater and so that changes the wave dynamics. Sure. I actually talked to somebody here who was here in the 50s before they put in the runway. Oh, okay. And uh, the beach down there right by the Science Center, mm-hmm. he said the waves used to come in there and you look there and there's some places where the rock is really sculpted and yeah. polished and you're like... It sure doesn't look like the waves ever get big enough to really do that kind of yeah. polishing uh, and smoothing. And he said, yeah, before they put in the runway, yeah. there was a lot more swell that came in. Oh, I was like, oh, so I never thought about that. Because you can still yeah. see out there, but that apparently knocked down a fair bit of the of the intensity of the okay. waves at times, presumably during storms. Yeah. And so, so then, you know. What are the effects of that in terms of the sea creatures that like more, uh, more surf? But mm-hmm. it's just a relatively small area, you know, yeah. so it's not like a, a range-wide sort of disturbance that, you know, something along the lines of regional climate or global climate change might incur. Or in the case of, uh, well, I guess it depends on how wide the range is, but, you know, mm-hmm. as, as glaciers are retreating, like an entire watershed could have very, um, very significant differences and and i guess that's part of what you're looking at with this is like what can we expect if a glacier disappears in a watershed Mm -hmm. i guess if they do in the watersheds you're studying then you have baseline data which will allow allow some comparison as well yeah yeah that's at least the starting point yeah there's so many questions (laughs) to go from from there i I feel like i have no shortage of things that i just going outside it's fun to be like okay why does that do that yeah well, and so you you mentioned that you like the the invertebrates and 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 such. I sort sort of curious how you like. Is this something that from from your very very youngest years <laughs> you're like super keen on these things, or you know how did you how did you come into this this love of of marine and marine invertebrates in particular? Oh, or I guess I mean you said seaweed too. So yeah. marine non vertebrates, I guess yeah. <laughs> life other than those yeah. with backbones. Oh, I guess so. I guess it was mostly as an undergrad. Like, I grew up near the, not too far from the water, so it was always good. I um, I loved to sail. And when I was a, an undergrad, I wanted to find a job where I could sit, get paid to sail. And so I knew about this one tall ship where you could be a deckhand and sail a big old historic boat and then also go play with marine critters. And so I started focusing on those. And the more I learned about invertebrates, they have the weirdest adaptations. Like they figure out the weirdest ways to lift places like a sea cucumber. They're they just like a little tube with then all these tentacles out of their mouth and they filter feed or they can like pull stuff up off the bottom. Like, why did you think that was a good idea? But they... <laughs> They make it work. They're so cool. Yeah. Yeah. Or sea stars. Like if you think about a, how weird a sea star is, it doesn't have a direction. <laughs> like it's just a circle with five little arms and doesn't have a head, but it, it does so many things. Yeah. Yeah. It is. Um, I don't know. I've never seen anybody actually, I've never seen any information about, um, I don't know what the word is, biodiversity density, uh, uh, the, the density of species mm-hmm. in in this region, of course, you know the rainforest, a tropical rainforest, is, oh, sure. is sort of notorious I, for being incredibly diverse, and part of that's because it's old landscapes and mm-hmm. so forth. But um, around here, it's relatively young landscape. But I I kind of got to think that that the intertidal is a is a, probably the peak biodiversity in terms of density of species. And I don't know whether probably, I would, I don't know. I mean, it's easier to observe on rocky shores. So mm-hmm. it's easy for me to go, Oh, well, of course it's the rocky shores, <laughs> but who knows what's under the mud. So maybe the mud is, is just as diverse. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> Cause I'm not really filtering through the mud to see what all the little critters are there. But um, yeah, it would be interesting to know, you know, get some, maybe somebody's done it, but I've, if so, I haven't seen it estimates of, of sort of, 
species species diversity, the number of species um, per whatever unit that you want mm-hmm. in different sort of habitats. But intertidal, and I don't know, I haven't spent any time in the subtitle, so I, I guess I would say intertidal and, and shallow subtitle. And yeah. I, my sense is as you get deeper, it becomes less diverse in part because there's just less light and so there's less primary productivity maybe. But I don't really know. It kind of changes. So it, it changes um, depending on the stress. So like in the intertidal, you're right, there's a lot of different things and it's because you have a lot of different influences so like the higher up you are in the intertidal the more you get exposed to air um which is not great if you're (laughs) you make your living in the marine environment um so you don't want to be up there but then that means there's a lot of things down competing for the lower intertidal but then you're going to be more likely to be eaten and so there's just all those dynamics that kind of play into where can you find a niche where you're the safest? Like what adaptations do you have that can make it so that you can survive the best? Like barnacles have done a really good job of living high intertidal um, because they've got all those armored plates so they don't dry out when the tide goes out. Um, might have lost track of where I was going with this, but <laughs> it's really diverse in the intertidal. Yeah. But then as you go deeper, those kind of dynamics change a little bit. So it's not just – so like you mentioned with light, the, the, the light attenuates – so you don't have as much light available, so there might be not be as many um, seaweeds, but then you might have more invertebrates and more fish getting deeper. So if you're just looking at straight numbers, it might not change necessarily, but the what the community actually looks like changes. I suppose as you're describing the intertidal, I was like, well, maybe it makes a difference. Like intertidal is a really steep gradient, mm-hmm. essentially, but it's also stable. Like it's predictable, steep yeah. gradient. So you have the, here it's, 12 feet, 14 feet from the highest high to the lowest low. And you have some, like there are beetles that live in the intertidal somehow. Yeah. That little <laughs> intertidal rove beetles that don't have gills. So somehow they're surviving in the in the uh, flood zone. And you mm-hmm. have, you know, uh, crustaceans and, and mollusks that do have gills. And mm-hmm. they're surviving outside of the water for these extended yeah. periods of time. You have the tide pools in between. Uh, and, and you have all of this stuff going on in a relatively narrow band, but predictable. So then, yeah. you know, we were used to talking about if we spend much time at the beach, well, it's high intertidal or low intertidal. Yeah. So, so maybe that, you know, as you were describing there, there's this, there's this ability to, to diversify essentially and pick your relatively narrow niche. But those niches are close together because of the nature of yeah. tides coming in and out. Whereas when you get down below where it's always wet all the time, mm-hmm. you know, the, the gradient of light disappearing is slower. Plus there's other you know, if you can move around easily, then there's yeah. plenty of, plenty of, uh, you know, move up and down to, to either um, look for prey or avoid being the prey kind of things and and those sorts of things. But the gradient's a lot slower, so, mm-hmm. so it's not really fair to to <laughs> compare, you know, this you know this twelve foot tide range with even forty feet of subtidal because it's just not it's it's mostly. It's not strictly uniform, but it's not yeah. changing as, as quickly. Yeah, and a lot of that, again, it depends on the shape of the, the land. So you can also have, like, straight rock walls, which mm. you don't have as much distance where the, that light's going to go away slowly. It's going to go away quickly. So you'll have a lot of diversity on those rock walls, maybe um, in different regions or in, like, pockets. And so it, it gets really fun dynamics yeah yeah i it's the inner the, the ways that it's not even that it's like their lifestyle it's that how i mean waves are really forceful like yeah. how it is that they're able to not just get beat up completely especially some of those soft-bodied creatures yeah um but they 
obviously they figured it out better than I have. Uh, <laughs> they, they do okay. But I, you know, on the land, I sometimes, it's interesting, like around here, the land is, is, as you go different places in Southeast Alaska, there, there are differences, uh, certainly in species abundance and that mm-hmm. sort of thing with different plants and, and to a certain extent, different animals. But, um, and then the, um, and in different watersheds, like there's different forests that have just a slightly different feel to them. Mm-hmm. And I can't really put my finger on what it is. Is it the light or is it the particular species composition or just, you know, and I don't really know. Mm-hmm. But then there are these little microhabitat, little pockets of places. Yeah. And then it's like, and I don't know how, I mean, maybe somebody, some plant ecologist or somebody or biodiversity specialist will come in and, and could try and quantify this. But it feels like at times, like, I'll just make up a number, but like 90% of it's pretty uniform. And then there's 10% of these little pockets where most of the actual species diversity is, you know, whether that's a, an outcrop around here, we don't have a lot of uh, calcareous limestone kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And so whether it's an outcrop where there's a little bit of that or yeah. whether there's, you know, a little pocket that's, that's wet all the time in ways that other places aren't or, or what it is, you know, that the diversity happens in those. And it seems like the ocean, or, or at least the places I go look. And, and to be fair, I'm looking in places that have more diversity because I want to find more things. Sure. So, <laughs> so um, maybe it's not the case that maybe the ocean is similar as well, but the intertidal is one of those sort of pockets that's pretty easily accessed. Yeah. And, and we can go visit, you know, daily if we're yeah. excited about it. Well, and it's one of those areas that I, I didn't really think about this till I was in college, but it is one of the most extreme environments that an animal can live in. Like either you're a land animal and then you get submerged underwater or you're a water animal and you get exposed to air for a big chunk of your time. Like that's not ideal at all, but they... And hot and the cold. And, and hot and the cold. They've got all these weird dynamics that they have to deal with. And I guess I never really thought about how extreme that would be for something trying to live, like make their living there in that one spot. But that's a pretty extreme environment and they find really cool ways. And then yeah. you add wave energy in and that's huge. Um, I can... I think chitons are chitons like are kind the of, coolest yeah. for like being able to handle wave energy because they have all those little interlocking plates so they can mm-hmm. really like suction on and like conform their body to rocks. I just I'm really impressed by chitons. <laughs> yeah, they're um, I, I like to find I like to find those. Uh, some of them are hard to identify. Some mm-hmm. of them less yeah. <laughs> less difficult. But uh, it is it is interesting to to consider the way all those things you know, work together and then are interacting together within yeah. the intertidal and, and those kind of um, relationships. Because, yeah, it's like in the wintertime, you could be subjected to very cold. And this actually this past winter, um, we had a cold snap in southeast Alaska. Mm-hmm. It was also quite cold on the Kenai Peninsula. Uh, it was not as cold in Sitka as it was in Juneau. But it corresponded with a, a pretty low tide series. And yeah. it was also high pressure, so the tide was even lower. And there was um, somebody posted, somebody that likes to get out for intertidal stuff and post posts on iNaturalist a lot, was posting that they found a lot of, I can't remember, I think it was dead crabs. Oh, um, okay. Like maybe they were um, um, flat top uh, porcelain yeah. crabs. Okay. Um, Petrolithes. Um, yeah. And, and what's, I, I don't remember if that's what the species was, but that species is one that they didn't used to find and now they're oh, finding a bunch okay. of. And it kind of made me think, Oh, so these these species that are sort of at the edge of their range, you know, and they go and they're planktonic. So it's not like it's that hard to get from here where they're really common to over yeah. there. Uh, I wouldn't think I mean, there's currents that kind of go around. 
Um, but maybe it's events like those. Those sort of like, well, it doesn't happen every year, but every 10 or 15 years, mm-hmm. you know, if you get a new population established in a place, then an event like that would be just be like, oh, sorry, you're not <laughs> actually adapted for this kind yeah. of uh, climate, which, you know, we have these these cold events. And that could be a sort of an event that, that limits range of, yeah. might not be the everyday temperature stuff, but but it could just be these rare events that happen that, that limit the range of some creatures. Mm-hmm. But yeah, just like, how because that's cold it was cold enough to freeze salt water so how are these animals surviving that that cold when they're exposed like that that i don't that's one of the things that i've been really curious about going out and doing going walks in the winter and just seeing everything being frozen like the Mm. rockweed it's does i don't think it cares it just it it seems to just hang out it was it's been so crazy we um i did a dive in january in um when we uh, everything froze at low tide because it was kind of near a stream. So there was like ice coating the rocks. And then by the time we got back, the tide had come in. And so the ice was actually, it didn't um, defrost any of that ice that was on the rock. So there was ice at the bottom of our dive. Like it was so weird. Like those things don't even get a break when the when the tide comes back in. They don't get to warm up enough. They still are frozen in that, that ice matrix, which it just made me really curious about how do they do that? I know that we had a, a I had a collaborator or a, co-worker who's looking at the cryobiology and antifreeze proteins oh yeah and it just made me wonder about all the other ways that they can protect themselves from freezing and it was just, it just hasn't really been a thing i've always thought about subtitle in the antarctic stuff that i did i didn't really think about the intertidal but now since the intertidal is is more accessible here right <laughs> than, um, well and in some places i don't know what the tides are like in antarctica i imagine it depends on where but mm-hmm. um i just take for granted that we have significant tide yeah. i mean it's even bigger in in juno because you're further further in up the fjord basically but mm-hmm. but it is interesting and then in the summertime when like these these guys are are uh surviving all this freezing in the winter and then come summer like it's, all it's hot. like hot and dry and <laughs> yeah. this is like you're getting baked uh, yeah. especially on those black rock you know those rocks yeah. that are dark and and then it just it's like somehow yeah. they're they're figuring it out clearly <laughs> <laughs> and I guess I guess maybe that's another range killer for for you know things that would be typically more further north or something. Mm-hmm. There's something about uh, something about uh, you know just events that that might because here it's not usually that sunny to be fair, but sometimes <laughs> yeah sometimes, sometimes it, gets it warm. is yeah and uh, you can get those bays that I mean like it feels like almost like warm bathwater when the tide comes in in a shallow sort sure. of uh, yeah. cove and it's heated up the ground enough that it warms up the water and it's like the water's warm. That's a lot of heat that's yeah. gone into that. So wow. it's uh, yeah interesting to to consider and I, I mean. I guess I'm kind of curious because you mentioned that fatty acids, you know, it matters that the temperatures and stuff is are are is the fatty acid profile something that can be protective for some of these things, or is it or is it something that adjusts as a result of like like oh we can't actually make these in this temperature, but uh, we can make these other ones instead, or yeah. are there like things that go on at that level? Yeah. Okay. So let's see if I can make this not technical. So <laughs> <laughs> um, so fatty acids are part of um, the cell membranes. Mm-hmm. So in basic biology, you have the the fatty at the fatty acid tails on the, the bilipid <laughs> layer around the cells, um, and so they kind of set how fluid that membrane is and how much that moves around. And so as you think heat up, that will make that membrane fluidity more fluid. So, but as an animal, you don't want your or anything you don't want your <laughs> membranes like falling apart. So they can actually um, 
change the the type of fatty acid in those membranes um, to maintain that fluid um, dynamic so that even though you're heating up, your membranes and your cells are still happy and okay. But it means that when you look at the fatty acids, they look different. Mm. So as you get warmer, um, you actually get more of the um, unsaturated fatty acids. And as you get colder, no, you can... Let me get this backwards. <laughs> well, I mean, so that actually reminds me. So, like, when we're eating um, oils, you know, monounsaturated, polyunsaturated, and unsaturated, mm-hmm. or, or and saturated fatty acids, um, like, are they solid at room temperature kinds yeah. of things, right? So, the saturated ones, like our animal fats, are yeah. solid at room temperature, and you have to heat them more. Whereas your um, your your plant based ones, your monounsaturated, or I think it's olive oil monounsaturated, yeah. yeah, and and so it tends to be liquid unless your mm-hmm. house is as cool as mine in the winter, and then it starts to solidify just yeah. a little bit. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, all right, and so, so that's part of what's going on then in the cell membrane, and yeah. that's that's part of the way that uh, uh, more than just animals, uh, organisms are yeah. are um, able to be resilient to different temperatures. Yeah, and so you're, you're, it's changing the fatty acid profile but the overall animal is still functioning the same so in that way changing the fatty acids is protective Mm -hmm. so uh, this is something i'd always kind of wondered about and you may not have any sort of an answer for this which is fine but um there are species that have a very narrow temperature tolerance Mm -hmm. like it's it's like you know outside of that you're dead too warm too hot yep not uh, too cold or too too warm it's a problem Uh, whereas others you know have this wide range and so is, is one of the things that could be in, uh, impacting that, their ability to, to do these fatty acid sort of things in, this, in the cells? That Could be. Yeah. I mean, there could be other things too, I'm sure. It's but, probably a lot of interacting yeah. things, but yeah. But that's the sort of thing that might, might have. Uh, 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 and are there trade-offs to sort of the ability to, to, um, to do that? Like, is there a cost associated with the ability to be flexible in different temperatures? Yeah, it takes a little bit to remodel, like redo everything. But as long as you have the resources, your your body is pretty good at like making those adjustments yeah. that you need. So and it can influence your metabolism maybe. And I, I suppose that for animals like us that have a homeostasis, the right word there, where we keep ourselves pretty much. Yeah, the homeotherms. S- yeah, stable. Yeah. Versus organisms that are like subject to the whims of weather and water. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> as we were talking about the intertidal creatures. That um, that there's uh, yeah different things that they get to try and do to to compensate. Yeah, I saw a paper where they looked at sea stars and mm-hmm. they um, they used one of those heat guns that you use to like tell like how energy efficient your house is. <laughs> they use it on the sea stars and they actually saw that they would take water in at the low tide and pull it into their body so that when the tide went out they'd hold that water in there and it actually helped keep them cooler mm. than their environment around them. So not only did it keep them from drying out, it also cools them off. It was one of those like things I hadn't thought about because I was like, oh yeah, they just need the water because they don't want to dry out. But actually it's helping them maintain that kind of Is body it from evaporation that it's doing that or is it just from mass? Wait, or, or where both. they're losing water? Well, well, no, that that the temperature regulation. So, so as they pull in the water, presumably it's cooler, mm-hmm. and, but it it would, and that mass, that thermal mass, essentially would take longer to warm up. But I'm yeah. wondering if there's also a component of evaporative heat loss that, like, as the as the water is also evaporating from them, that that's helping them to stay. Cooler oh, that as well. can help too. I think, but in this case, it was mostly that it was. Adding more water, which just it takes more energy to warm up one mm-hmm. little unit of water than probably body tissue. So it was helping buffer that temperature change. 
Yeah. Wow. That's pretty. It's. I mean, I guess it shouldn't be surprising, but it's always fascinating. Maybe that's yeah. the word that I, I just use. never thought yeah. of it. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> All the things that we don't have to worry about and don't tend to think about until you really start asking, like, how is it that you live where you live? Yeah. And all the problems that you, or challenges, let's call it, cha- opportunities yeah. that you have to uh, <laughs> adapt to to the environment in yeah. different ways, and and I guess what can we learn from that at times is yeah. kind of like an interesting interesting uh, question to consider. Yeah. Um, so is your like what are the sorts of things that I mean either professionally or personally or both I don't know how much those some folks those braid together pretty close, <laughs> but what are the sorts of things that that you know you've been here a little over a year that like you're especially curious about and and is there anything that you know as you're as people are out and about that if if like particular things that you would encourage people if they notice something that you'd be like to hear about or you know especially relevant to the sorts of questions you're trying to answer? Oh man, that is. A really good question. I I don't. I'm still learning what mm-hmm. is here. Um, I love echinoderms, so that's the phylum that includes everything from sea urchins and sea cucumbers, and I, I love them all. Um, and so the sea star wasting disease um, that would be good to know if people are seeing any stars that are continuing to waste, because I know that's been a, a problem in the south or down south, and um, it can like it would be interesting to see if there's like a time of year like a seasonality where that might be worse and if it's still around up here um that would be i would love to hear more about that i mean i want to hear about it i would like to hear that it's not here at all let me (laughs) yeah but if it is here it would be good to know um where that is and how that's happening i had somebody reach out and ask if um gulls can get infected like do they get sick if they eat a wasted star and i don't know because they saw a star a gull eating a star that looked like it was wasted. I was like, I have no idea. I kind of want to know that yeah. too. That's a really great question. So even just observations like that are, are great. I'd love to noodle was, on those. Like those, those, uh, um, ochre stars, the, uh, Pisasters, the, mm-hmm. I've seen goals eating, well, eating, but having them in their mouth. <laughs> yeah. And I guess they ultimately are able to eat them. I saw a little, somebody posted a blog post from somewhere down, in Washington, uh, a series of pictures of, I don't know how long it took, but uh, <laughs> the goal. And I guess what was happening was kind of that water thing. They pulled the water in, but the goal was eventually, like it just started squeezing the water out. And oh, the, and, okay. and eventually, because the, those ochre stars seems really, for a, for a starfish, they seem pretty rigid to me yeah. and not very benzene flexible kind of thing. So it's always been a little, I'm like, how do those goals, but I've seen enough of them doing it. It's kind of like, are you all just young and dumb? Or <laughs> is there something here that I don't really, you know, that, that your goal, everything is food until you learn that it's not, might be, might be the story there. And, yeah. that, uh, but, but apparently at least sometimes, at least that one occasion, they, they do manage to get them down. I don't know how much nutrients are in them, but, yeah. um, but it had to do with uh, like getting the water out, and then their rigidity okay. kind of decreases. Yeah. They don't; they aren't able to to be that way. But it is, um, yeah. I wouldn't have any idea as to whether that might make a goal sick or not. Um, yeah, yeah, I, I just don't know. It seems like it wouldn't necessarily target them. But yeah, it doesn't seem like it would be a good meal either. Yeah. Do you have any uh, like favorite uh, discoveries here? I mean, that were new for you that that you're like, oh wow, I never even knew. And then and then that that in Southeast Alaska. I don't I don't know. I think it's just getting to see things mm-hmm. in person that I've heard about or I've seen pictures of. I got to do a dive today and uh, it was just a fun dive. Um, I got to see abalone mm. um, just moving around, like trucking around like I've seen the shells, but like actually seeing them alive and their, their foot and their little, there's just, it's cool to see them. Um, 
in their houses. Yeah. <laughs> and little brittle stars, all kinds of fun. I don't know. It's just fun to see things in their habitats. Getting underwater makes such a, I mean, I mostly look at stuff when it's exposed and mm-hmm. it's not really so happy then usually. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I mean, it's there and it's still kind of, and you can see stuff in tide pools sometimes, but, but yeah, when you're actually able to either be a snorkeling or diving, get yeah. down in the water with them and spend a little time like where they're happy. Yeah. Then it's kind of a different experience, it seems like. Oh, that's one of the, so I actually got to see sea pens. Oh, nice. Yeah. Um, in the wild. And that was, a, I've never seen those before, like in person. And that they're just so cool. They're so weird. Yeah. <laughs> they're so cool. There was kind of like a sandy bottom. And then just like, there's this beautiful orange sea pen. Yeah, it's feathery kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. I have only seen those in the wild once, but I wasn't in the water. I could see them. It was clear enough water and shallow enough in a sandy bottom. I guess I thought those were sea pens. Um, but then I, they have some at the aquarium at the yeah. science center right now. And then, and then there was a starfish there that I'd never heard of before. And I asked the, the aquarium person, uh, Matt there, he's like, oh yeah, those starfish hang out with sea pens. Cause that's pretty much all they eat. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, oh, <laughs> how about that? And he says, sea pens don't have a, I asked him about feeding them. He's like, well, sea pens don't actually have a lot of nutrition. So pretty much the starfish, if you get it to its mouth, it'll eat it. And then, <laughs> and then because it's, it's so used to eating things that have so little nutrient value that. It, it, no, we don't worry too much about it missing some <laughs> missing some stuff yeah, I guess yeah. which is yeah I mean that's a whole nother level when you have to uh, when you have to then give consideration like it's it's one thing to sort of idly speculate and wonder okay well how do these things all live together and work together but then when you're responsible for sort of managing this yeah. little mini habitat and ecosystem you know mini ecosystem where they're all kind of there, then you're like, oh, you actually have to pay a whole nother level of attention to the the details of some of those things. For sure. So kind of fascinating. Well, is there anything else you want to mention before we wrap up here? Um, I don't know. (laughs) No worries if not. I've had a really fun time chatting. (laughs) Oh, yeah, good. And you enjoyed your trip to Sitka? Oh, yeah. It's been amazing. It's it's not that far away, but it's just a few different critters that I get to see here than I I do further Mm. inland and that has been so fun um, getting to compare and contrast and everybody's been so welcoming and friendly and nice and it's just been really great after feeling like things have been kind of Yeah, it was a little rough rough to come into into the state in 2020, I guess, uh, when we were all mid-COVID times. So, yeah, yeah, maybe hopefully things will normalize a little bit here as we we continue on. And, yeah, that's one of the things that fascinates me is, like, I'm really mostly focused on Sitka, but also interested in Sitka within the context of Southeast Alaska. Mm -hmm. And, and like, what are – I mean, so much of it's quite similar. Yeah. But then there are the differences. And what are those differences? And, you know, what – if in some cases, it's pretty obvious, like there's birds that are on the mainland that don't really come to the islands. Mm-hmm. But in other cases, it might have to do with salinity or coldness or something like that with marine creatures. But like lots of these questions about like, why are these out here and not in there and vice versa? Yeah. You know? Yeah. So, well, I appreciate your time and thanks for coming in. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. You've been listening to a conversation I recorded with Julie Schramm. She was a scientist in residence fellow at the Sitka Sound Science Center earlier this year. She's an assistant professor at the University of Southeast Alaska based in Juneau. I want to thank her for taking some time to visit with me while she was here in Sitka. And thank you for joining me here on the Sitka Nature Show. As we're less than two weeks away from the summer solstice and this time of long days, I hope you're getting out. And as always, I'd love to hear what you're seeing out there. Please feel free to send me an email, sitkanature at gmail.com, or you can get on Facebook and like the Sitka Nature page there. 
Until next time, this has been Matt on the Sitka Nature Show, KCAW Sitka.